is a presentation of the Sovereign Tech Podcast feed. From days of long ago, from uncharted regions of the universe, comes a legend. The legend of Sovereign Tech, podcast of the universe, a mighty tech show. Loved by anarchists, feared by authoritarians. As Sovereign Tech's legend grew, peace settled across the galaxy. On planet Earth, a union of egoists was formed. Together with the open source, retro gaming, and liberty-loving communities, they maintained peace throughout the universe. Until a new horrible menace threatened the galaxy. Sovereign Tech was needed once more. This is the podcast of super host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. Specially trained and sent out into the galaxy to bring back Sovereign Tech, podcast of the universe. Woo! It is a cause for celebration. Because the queen is dead? No, no, no. Because Sovereign Tech is on, baby. Woo! Just when you thought it was safe to open up your podcast app, the man in triple black is back. And I know how uncomfortable this makes a lot of podcasters. You know you're out there, and you know who I'm talking about. All of the others that have faded away over the years in this game. All the others have said, Woo! I quit. And all those who thought they could shine through my shadow, too bad. The darkness is back, baby. A man that some have called the most dangerous person on the planet today. The Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Sabzu, the rated R radio star, Dr. Brian, smarter than your ass, sovereign. That's right. The measuring stick has changed once again in podcasting. And you're listening to it right now. Ready to railroad over the bullshit being peddled today, and this bigger, better, better than ever train ain't ever gonna stop, slap nuts. Woo! Man, <laughs> I feel like, woo, I feel like Elvis. 
before the 68 comeback special. Everybody's wondering, does he still have it? Well, I'm going to let you be the judge on this one. But that's right, back in action, baby. And we are here for episode 490 of Sovereign Tech. And we have got a lot to get into. And per usual, we're going to take on all the big players. We're going to take on Apple. We're going to take on, we might get to Amazon. We'll see about that. We're going to take on Google on a big one when we get to the story of the week. But we've got some great action for the foreplay. But let's just say, bottom line again, it is great to be back in action. And tell you what, I might even call an audible, no pun intended, with Amazon. uh, Because I just had another story come in for listener's choice that, uh, I well, (laughs) I think this deserves the sovereign tech treatment. But, without further ado, let us get into the foreplay where we cover the little stories that uh, happen throughout the week in tech. And, uh, well, depends on on how little you consider these things. Of course, the Apple event occurred this week, and everybody's talking about, and this just shows you how pathetic they are, everybody's talking about the dynamic island, as if somehow that just changed the universe, because... They effectively have a taskbar that can change shape at the top of the iPhone 14. Apparently that's newsworthy. I guess that just, again, it just shows how pathetic people are. Like, how, how bad, how sad is the news cycle when that's all you can talk about? And <laughs> even more so when that probably got more coverage than, than the, uh, uh, the death of, of Elizabeth the two, you know? <laughs> But before you get all hot and bothered about that dynamic island, oh, 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 you see my nipples when I think about the dynamic island. Holy shit. No, they're not hard at all. Uh, Renob. Anyway, before you get all hot and bothered about that, maybe you might want to think twice about using iOS. Now, why is that? Well, we had a story. Uh, there was a story that went live. Particularly, uh, Ars Technica was was breaking it, even though um, there were security researchers involved who were breaking it, as well as uh, Proton, that being the people behind Proton Mail and Proton VPN, um, who were covering this in the middle of August 2022. Story was by Kevin Purdy. Link is in the show notes for Sovereign Tech. And, well, here's the headline for you. I mean, the, the, you know, we're not going to read the entire story here because it's just the foreplay, but... I want to break this down. I want to get into this quickly. And the headline, quite simply, iOS VPNs have leaked traffic for years, researcher claims. So what are the claims and are they true? Well, first off, yes. Let's just get that horse right in front of the cart. Yeah, it's true. And I'm just going to read a little bit from Michael Horowitz, who is the researcher uh, that that broke this story, even though, um, as I stated, uh, Proton had already, which, you know, they have a uh, financial incentive to worry about this because outside of Proton Mail, their biggest service they have going is Proton VPN. I mean, they're trying to do other things with like their, their, what is kind of a Google Drive alternative and their calendar, uh, both of which I applaud, even though I wish that their uh, Drive competitor would actually have like encrypted document editing. That would be phenomenal. But Anyway, maybe that's something that's coming down the line. At least they're doing it. At least they're building these kinds of tools, which 
Last time I ch- I checked, and, and we're certainly not going to talk about what occurred with Trilio here, not right now, um, but the Signal Foundation, what, seven years ago when that was founded? I want to say it was seven years ago, uh, to the tune of, I don't know, how, how many millions of dollars? It was at least half a million from Brian Acton. I forget how much else uh, that, that got put into that. They said they were going to make a suite of tools. Last time I checked, there's still only the Signal app. So, I don't know, at least ProtonMail is, you know, making something new that's uh, encrypted using rock-solid encryption. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about quite the opposite with a v- with VPNs, uh, pretty much all VPNs on iOS, potentially leaking data. Uh, but what my point that I was getting to was that Proton uh, had come out or had, had contacted Apple years ago. This is back with iOS 13, so at least a couple of years ago. Uh, saying, you know, saying to Apple, hey, guys, uh, you know, our VPNs are leaking and it's it's at an OS level. Could you fix this? And Apple has chosen to this day not to. And Michael Horowitz's points uh, are backing that up. Let's read it here. Michael, quote, Michael Horowitz, a longtime computer security blogger and researcher, puts it plainly, if contentiously, in a continually updated blog post. Again, link is in the show notes for this. Uh, Continuing on, quote, VPNs on iOS are broken, end quote, he says. Any third-party VPN seems to work at first, giving the device a new IP address, DNS servers, and a tunnel for new traffic, Horowitz, Horowitz writes, but sessions and connections established before a VPN is activated, do not terminate, and in Horowitz's findings with advanced router logging, uh, can still send data outside the VPN tunnel while it's active. In other words, you might expect a VPN client to kill existing connections before establishing a secure connection so they can be reestablished inside the tunnel. But iOS VPNs can't seem to do this, Horowitz says, a finding that is backed up by a similar report from May 2020. Quote, data leaves the iOS device outside of the VPN tunnel, end quote, Horowitz writes, quote, this is not a classic legacy DNS leak. It is a data leak. I confirm this using multiple types of VPN and software from multiple VPN providers. The latest version of iOS that I tested with is 15.6. Now, end quote there. Uh, So, of course, as of this recording, uh, tomorrow on September 12th, iOS 16 will uh, release. We're going to talk about iOS 16 here after this story um, because it speak, but both of these stories really speak to a much broader problem of a world we live in with, um, shall we say, non-efficacious development, you know, uh, like development of software and operating systems. But we'll get into that with, with the next bit uh, during the foreplay here. Now, I want to read a little bit. There's a little bit from Proton's blog post about this as well. I'm going to read this this paragraph fast. Quote, privacy company Proton previously reported on iOS VPN bypass vulnerability that started at least in iOS 13.3.1. Like Horowitz's post, Proton VPN's blog noted that a VPN typically closes all existing connections and reopens them inside a VPN tunnel. But that didn't happen on iOS. Most existing connections will eventually end up inside the tunnel, but some, like Apple's push notification service, can last for hours. Now, I want to be super, super clear on this, okay, on, on a few points here. One is... If you think this is only happening with Apple and with iOS, there's bridges in faraway geographies that you might be interested in buying from me. Uh, but <laughs> now, this, the idea that 
specific apps are at, at an operating system level. Okay, meaning so it's the company who actually uh, uh, codes, develops the operating system, that their apps are circumventing the VPN service that you're running on either a desktop computer or a mobile device. Like, that's happening. Microsoft is doing that. Um, I, I mean, and, and, you know, who can imagine? I imagine with Chromebooks that that happens because it's odd how VPNs work on Chromebooks particularly. Um, I mean, I, you know, kind of on the flip side, I applaud Google for wanting to route everything through VPN. Like if you're a Google Fi subscriber, um, particularly with uh, Android phones, you know, it will, it will route all, I mean, it's all going to Google servers, you know, it's going to their VPN, which we should talk about that. But um, now Google Fi, if you can use that on an iPhone and you also, a more recent development is you will get access to Google's VPN on your iOS device. But I imagine that that VPN as solid as that is, as far as a VPN goes, um, is still affected by this. Okay. But just don't, don't think Apple's the only one pulling this stunt. Uh, really? In fact, I, I mean, I've talked about this in the past before there was any kind of official reporting on it, uh, or research on it, where I was noticing that certain apps, um, like within windows 10 were not registering the location that I had set what was supposed to be system-wide, you know, uh, a VPN traffic to that was going on. Now, most VPNs, um, outside of iOS, and I mean that it is particular to iOS and I would suppose in turn, iPad OS, even those are still kind of the same thing, even though iPad OS, I know can do other things. Um, and I'll talk more about iPads in a second, but most VPNs that you use on other operating systems usually allow for certain features. Like it will allow for a kill switch. A kill switch is if the internet drops at all, um, the, you know, the VPN will stop all track, or should I say, if the VPN stops at all, it will drop, uh, uh, it will not allow for any, um, outgoing data packets. It will kill internet connectivity. If anything happens to the VPN server that it's trying to connect to. That's a great feature. That's a feature you generally, you will not find on iOS. Okay. Um, that's a feature you sure as fuck won't find, uh, using Google's VPN. I can tell you that, um, it is a feature you can find on Android VPNs, but so here's the funny thing, like a full featured VPN, you can really only get on a desktop operating system, like say Mac OS, Linux, or windows of certain stripes. Um, of course, me, you know, my, my main daily driver outside of my Linux machines is actually a Windows 7 machine. Um, I use the VPN that I use and that I've been using for a while now. I no longer recommend, nor do I use uh, private Internet access. I use Molvad uh, VPN, which is rock solid. Part of the reason I switched over to them, one is they have probably the best implementation of WireGuard as compared to OpenVPN, um, and I appreciate that. But the, one of the main reasons I use them is simply that their client uh, still supports Windows 7. As to where that was not true for private internet access, and frankly, private internet access has a whole slew of other problems as far as, uh, uh, shall we say, company management, among other things, go. Um, so, you know, you can only get it that way. Now, there are trade-offs, like no VPN on Android, or at least on, on Google's stock Android. You know, if you get into putting you know, Calyx OS, Graphene, something like that, you, different story. Okay. 
But with Google's Android, with stock Android, and with iOS, like there are differences. For example, well, let, let me tell So I have an iPad. I have a fifth gen iPad Air. Okay. Uh, very nice device. Like, I'll be honest, very nice device, very easy to use. Um, at some point, I'll probably do a review of it because I want to have the conversation around can, and I know other people have written about this and talked about it, but can an iPad really replace a PC? Um, I'm sure some of my audience is laughing their asses off right now at that suggestion, but I think it's worth talking about. And of course, because I mean, we're talking back in 2014 when they released like the, when Apple released the first 128 gig, which was unheard of at the time, uh, iPad, I said, yeah, Apple's looking to get rid of, you know, Macs. They're looking to get rid of the MacBook and everything else. And they are, they want you to use an iPad as your computer. Um, and I think that conversation can certainly do some revisiting nearly 10, you know, pretty almost a decade to the day later. Um, anyway, I have on my iPad, I have, uh, the Mulvad VPN app on there and it works very well. Okay. I also have on my pixel six, I also have, you know, an Android phone. I also have uh Mulvad on there. So I know the differences and I experienced these same differences. I've tested other VPNs as well, including brave VPN, proton VPN, and others across all of these different devices. Uh, let me assure you Mulvad like blows all of them out of the water, but Aside from that, okay, my, the point I want to get to here is on iOS. So, well, here on, on Android, one thing that VPNs can't do that is common across iOS. And what I would argue is actually the real reason to use a VPN on iOS Uh, on Android. It does. They do generally do not have ad blocking features. You can get the kill switch. You can get other things on there that are really nice that you don't get on iOS you know, uh, versions of the same app of the same service, but you don't get the ad blocking on there. Um, that for me on iOS, like again, it's the whole reason to run a VPN and I run a VPN nonstop. I run Mulvad nonstop on, uh, my iPad, frankly, just for, um, the ad blocking, uh, ability, because usually, I mean, you can get separate ad blockers on iOS, but usually pay a monthly or annual fee for those. Why not pay the monthly or annual fee to a VPN provider, which a VPN is already useful, not as useful on, uh, you know, on, on an iOS device or iPad as they are on other devices. I'll explain why. Um, but why not just do that? So, but I want to be, this is the other part I want to be clear. So there's differences in what you can do on mobile devices with the same exact service that you use on every device that you have. I want to make sure, you know, that that's, that's clear. Um, as far as, you know, VPNs being broken on iOS, in my opinion, ultimately, you know, like what to do, is that bullshit on Apple's part? Of course it is. Uh, am I surprised that they are not allowing their, you know, especially their apps and their services, like their push notifications, which are a major problem for privacy and security on any mobile device. And this is true for Apple or Google brought this up many times over the past couple of years. Um, but you know, to ultimately like, I look running a VPN is a very good thing, but you got, let, let's be clear on the reasons why. Okay. So let's, let's answer the question. What are VPNs good for? 
They're good for stopping, you know, your ISP from tracking, you know, what you're doing. Okay. That's, I, I think that that's a fine and dandy thing. It's the same reason I run a VPN on my smartphone. Same reason I run a VPN again on the iPad um, is, you know, just so that the ISP doesn't know what I'm doing. Now, is the VPN company going to know what I'm doing in that case? Well, you kind of have to take their word for it that they're not keeping logs. But if they are keeping logs, um, here's here's the rub. So, and I've talked about this in episodes lately, uh, you know, episodes of Sovereign Tech lately as well. Uh, I use, and I don't like the company, but I use Dropbox for a lot of my um, like document creation and editing um, and storage and, and all of that. Uh, of course, I keep separate copies as well. But when I have to do collaborative stuff, like say with, you know, Mrs. Sovereign um, for, you know, the Sovereign Technica newsletter, um, you know, we use Dropbox. Now, why do we use Dropbox? Reason being, I know that I write what would be considered all be, even though it's completely peaceful, I write what is what would easily be considered incendiary shit. Um, and not just like, you know, philosophical extremes, but even like, you know, like I, I write short fiction, erotic short fiction for the newsletter. If you pay for it, you get that. If you just go for the free version, you still get a lot, but you don't get, you don't get that among other things. Um, but I, you know, I use Dropbox because, you know, I have to do that collaborative document editing. Okay. And I like to have a cross device solution. Um, there are, I mean, yes, I know I could use like sync thing and some other stuff, but point being if, and this is going to speak directly to what we're going to talk about with Google during story of the week. All right. Point being, if I lose my Dropbox account because of something I wrote is considered incendiary and a problem. Okay. And Dropbox is like, Hey, you're breaking our terms of service with what you wrote. Um, we're deleting your account. If that happens, no big deal. Fuck. I mean, fuck you, Dropbox, but fuck. All right. I lost my Dropbox account. Doesn't matter. It's not like my Dropbox account is attached to my email. You're, you know, like, like, like I don't have Dropbox email. I don't have Dropbox map. I don't have your maps. My phone isn't powered by Dropbox. You know, all these different things, right? As compared to a Google account, like Google Drive is far and away the best online solution as far as, you know, like, uh, like Google Workspaces is... Look, I mean, again, fuck Google. I always say that, and I stand by that. I'll, I'll say it right to Sergey Brin's face or Larry Page. Fuck you. Sundar Pichai, come on down. <laughs> you know, if, if you need somebody to call you slap nuts, I'm right here. But as far as, you know, like what's out there, uh, it's the best at what it does. Blows away Dropbox, blows away Microsoft Office, you know, Office 3, or Microsoft 365, blows all of them away. Um, but here's the thing. So, you know, why not use that? Right? Well, because if I break Google's terms of service, I'm screwed six ways a Sunday because then suddenly my phone doesn't work. Then suddenly, like I lose all kinds of things. My Gmail account is gone, which, you know, still gets used here and there. And again, I use Google Fi for, you know, due to international reasons, like, like it's just, it's the only deal that makes sense in town. If you're somebody that has to travel globally. It, it that's just that's the end of the story okay like don't argue with me about that it, it, it's it's a fact yeah okay i could get a phone with like multiple sim cards and i could keep going through that process believe me i've done that it's a pain in the fucking ass when you're just trying to get in and get out of whatever country but regardless we move on okay <laughs> sometimes we do have to make arguments from practicality as much as i may not like it 
So, you know, like if I lose my Google account, I lose a lot. If I lose my Dropbox account, it doesn't fucking matter. Same deal here. Okay. If you like, if you're concerned about a VPN company tracking what you do, the threat is minimal compared to you losing your internet connection right from your ISP because you did something that the ISP didn't like. So of course use a VPN and it doesn't matter if they're tracking you. The bottom line being is that the ISP is not hopefully not seeing it. Okay. Who knows in the future with certain security certificates they could install on your OS could be a whole other problem, but point stands that you sure as fuck don't want your ISP to know because your ability to connect to the internet is on the line. And if you live out in West bumfuck, you know, of New Hampshire, like I do, you've only got one option, maybe two. And, you know, you, you can't afford to lose that, you know, to, to, to interact with the level one world. Right. So that, that's the deal. That's why I say, like, even if you're like, oh, well, okay. So the ISP might not be tracking me, but the VPN still storing what I do. That doesn't matter. There's a million VPN companies that you can keep switching through that, that that's not location specific. It doesn't, it, it really doesn't fucking matter. I mean, yes, do the due diligence of making sure you're, it's zero logs and all this shit, right? That's fine. But you know, it, like it's far easier to get another VPN company than and become their customer than it is to get another internet company. So be clear about that. Um, all right. So, so yeah, so VPN, service is useful for that. A VPN is not going to stop, you know, governments, corporations, whatever, from seeing what you're doing. This story proves that point with Apple. And like I said, they're not the only ones doing it. Um, so what other reasons are there still to use a VPN? Again, it's still a valid thing to use and to run at all times, make things hard for people, right? That's always worth it for that. Um, but yeah, if you are downloading shit and I, you know, and yeah, like with iPad or iOS, you know, okay, you can't run torrent apps, so you might not think it matters. But a lot of times, I mean, me, somebody who downloads shit and does his rounds every day, you know, of, of downloading albums and comic books and everything else, um, you know, a lot of, believe it or not, maybe 10% of that downloading happens on torrent sites. Most of it happens, you know, through good old HTTPS. And so, you know, do you want to cover that? from your ISP? Absolutely. So yeah, uh, you know, if you engage in quote unquote illicit downloading, um, uh, you want to run a VPN that just makes sense. And that includes, um, if you're on, you know, iOS or an iPad, right? I mean, you still probably go to Z library and down. I mean, I do that all the time because my iPad, I, I use that, that. That's my comic book reader and my book reader, you know, fuck Kindle. And <laughs> anyway, that that's a whole other story. Um, actually a great sovereign tech listener, boy, he went through a time with his Kindle. We'll probably talk about that in the future. Um, but yeah, I'll download right from Z library onto my iPad. Does it make sense to run a VPN for that? You bet your ass. Uh, and then, you know, again, the other reason to continue to use a VPN and honestly, even with this, what we were just, what we're talking about here with iOS, um, still a great reason to use a VPN is just for that ad blocking capability, you know? That way you can run Safari and you have system-wide ad blocking, or you can run apps and you have system-wide ad blocking, a trick that you can't do on Android. Let's be honest. And it is a very appealing trick. You know, it's a great reason to use iOS. So as much as this is very damning of Apple and rightfully so, uh, at the same time, like I still think, uh, iOS 
device, you know, running VPNs on iOS or iPads uh, is a great is a great thing to do, even though it's not, say, protecting your privacy. But again, you know, and you just you want to pay attention to that. Right. Um, I like I said, I just run my VPN nonstop. I don't know that that's necessarily going to solve the issue. Um, You also run into issues with VPN usage you know, like if you're on a mobile device, that's always connected with 5g because you're switching between, uh, you know, you're switching between antennas, right? Like, and, and you know, like you're switching between this 5g pole and this 5g pole and this 5g pole. I mean, I think if you're smart, you, you lock your device into 4g if you can, but that's besides the point. Um, so, you know, a VPN with like with a mobile device, that's a lot scarier. So with iOS, I mean, or with an iPhone, that could be a little more problematic, but with an iPad, um, I think a lot, I'm going to guess that a lot of this, and, and I've done a little bit of testing where, you know, I keep pulling up a site, um, routing, you know, and to see like, wait a minute, where's this traffic routing through? Um, I think with an iPad and you being connected to a, you know, like instead you're connecting to routers, wherever you happen to be, I think you're in a little bit of safer shape. Um, but yeah, this could be a real problem for, you know, for iPhones. Uh, but it, it, overall, ultimately it's just a bad look for Apple. You know, it, it's just, I mean, the, the, this is them fucking up big time because it's been a problem for over two years and they have done nothing about it. Uh, is this, the, is this the first time Apple has reacted to security problems, uh, poorly and not done anything about it? No. Remember where, when they found out that there are all of these issues with QuickTime, and this is years ago, granted, nobody really uses QuickTime anymore unless they're very intentional about it. Um, like I have to run QuickTime on uh, certain, you know, like on my Windows 7 machine, I still have older versions of QuickTime on there, but that's because there are older games and older software that requires it. Um, but there were, there were security flaws in QuickTime that they refused to patch in windows, even though they knew the install base madness, man, like, wh- why, why make more? De- I don't, it doesn't matter if they're windows devices. Why make, why leave more devices insecure? So many devices insecure, especially years ago when that was talked about or when that was an issue regardless. Uh, so yeah, this just, you know, this fits with Apple's MO. Um, Speaking of Apple's MO, I want to get into, we got another story to get into quick, and then we got to get to our story of the week, baby. Um, and that is, like I said, uh, closer to the top of the show, of course, September 12th, that being tomorrow, as of this recording, iOS 16 is going live. I guess that includes, uh, iPad OS 16 as well. I will certainly be reviewing that on sovereign tech to see, Ooh, does that change my life? I mean, it'll probably just be a part of the foreplay. It'll be a quick shot, but they announced iOS 16 uh, earlier in the year. I want to say that was back in May during WWDC uh, of 2022 that they showed off a lot of features. Here's the funny thing. So, you know, they had their Apple event this week and now they're coming out and they're saying, hey, yeah, OK, so it's releasing on September 12th, but there are features that won't be there on Monday. In fact, when will they be there? Well, they might not be there till 2023. Uh, some of these features include live activities, uh, live acti- the live activities API, uh, share play support, context integration, matter support, focus filter, shared photo library. I mean, some of the major, major features that had to do with the overall UI, as well as that have to do with gaming and others. Some of the major features that were supposed to get you all hot and bothered, supposed to, like I was saying earlier, supposed to make those nipples hard, right? 
earlier this year. And they're like, yeah, well, okay. Yeah. iOS 16, we're, we're going to release it, but it's really not feature complete until 2023. Now is once again, same story. Is Apple the only company that does this? Fuck. No. Look at Microsoft. Look at, I mean, Google does the same thing, but look at Microsoft. Okay. Right. With windows 11, how long did it take for, uh, like Amazon Android app compatibility to get added into the public, uh, or, you know, the, the, the main version of windows 11, the non-beta version, right. Uh, months is, is it even there? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't have a windows 11 machine at the moment to know. Um, and I, I'm not terribly interested in getting one though. I'm sure eventually one will land in my lap. Um, but it, it took forever, you know, but that was again, when it got announced, in a very similar timeline where like with windows 11, it was in June. Was that 2021 June of 2021? And then it got an official release closer to October, 2021. And again, it was once it was feature incomplete all like many of the major features that they were touting, why this is going to change your fucking life didn't happen. Now this speaks to a broader problem. And again, as I'm trying to make the case here, it is not just about Apple. It is a broad problem across the tech giants and more. Okay. That like you're, there used to be, (laughs) I'll say five years ago to be generous, you know, but there used to be a genuine difference between, you know, in app and operating system development. There used to be a difference between a nightly build, a beta build and a public build as in an official build. Okay. There used to be differences, you know, and used to be like the understanding. And usually when you join like a beta channel so that you can get, you know, try a beta build and get the latest features in like Firefox or, you know, even a VPN app, frankly, or, you know, whatever, even though again, like your web browser or a VPN app, especially like why you would mess around with beta builds, you know, and potentially have bugs that, you know, could fuck up your shit. I always thought like, man, you you are rolling the dice. You're playing games with life when you do that. Um, but there used to be, you know, a very explicit difference, but now in my opinion, and I, cause I don't think this is Apple being cautious. This is just like, they have to announce the shit. They have to put the stuff out there. They have to please the investors. They have to try and get people excited again or whatever. Um, I, I mean, look, you know, I, all right. Okay. To be fair, I was there too. Like I remember, believe me, I remember when v- windows Vista was going to come out and after the wild and rightfully so success that windows XP was, and it was it really, really was windows XP was fucking awesome. Let's, let's call it, have your problems with Microsoft all you want. I've got them too, but windows XP fucking rocked. So, you know, I, when windows Vista was announced, like I remember me and my best friend at the time, like we, and we were both working at a tech company at the time too. And we were just so fucking jazzed. I mean, we were just talking about it all the time. We're like, yeah, we're going to be the first kid on my block to have that. You know I mean? We, we were so hyped about it. And, you know, honestly, after windows Vista, and I think we all know the story that, that kind of hype cycle just dies with experience. You know, you're just like, yeah, all right. All right. You know, Silicon Valley's not really interested in, adding anything that's like really going to change my life and really make things useful. If anything, the best thing that they could do is just make it faster, you know, work on lower end hardware, 
um, and make, you know, make system requirements and the necessary system resources, you know, less, lesser and, you know, make it more secure. That's, that's really all, you know, you could want them to do, but that doesn't get investors hot and bothered. And frankly, the average, you know, person who uses an iPhone or who uses a, you know, windows computer or uses whatever, they don't really care about that either. Right. They don't, even though really that's all we want and that's all anybody should want, but whatever I digress. Okay. A point being what I'm, where I'm going with all this is like, I get it. They want to get people excited. Okay. But ultimately I can't help, but feel that we're essentially all beta testers now, or worse, we're all on a nightly build. Like what you think is the official build of iOS 16 or what you think is the official build of windows 11 or whatever. No, you're, you're really just on a nightly. <laughs> you know? That's it. Because if it were a finished product, then it would have all of the fucking features that they featured when they first announced it. I mean, so they're already bullshitting us, but again, I think it's much worse. There is just these companies like, like what they're doing is so wildly complex, but they have to release on such crazy cycles, you know, where essentially you have to have what is considered an entirely different operating system a year later. And I'm terrified that Microsoft's going to do this with windows. You know, we're just going to end up with like year versions of windows going, going forward. I mean, their, their update cycles already nuts anyway, but we're, we're just at a point where we're just constantly beta testing and there's no such thing as an actual finished lockdown secure product that gets released to you. That is feature complete. And that's sad. Not only sad, it's fucking dangerous. And that's the worst part. You know, I said earlier, yeah, I'm still using windows seven. Um, I did an episode about a year ago. Well, or, you know, nine, 10 months ago, uh, where I said, you know, hello from windows seven. Um, my opinion that I talked about in that episode hasn't changed in IOTA. I mean, it, it just hasn't changed at all. Uh, like if not, if anything, every day I am more and more vindicated in using windows seven. And I think I talked about it there. I mean, I use zero patch, right. To, for, for, you know, to, to handle a lot of the security issues, even though I still get, um, you know, I still get the, like the ESR updates from the official updates from Microsoft. I mean, every patch Tuesday, like all you other Microsoft users, I'm still getting patches every Tuesday. I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, Microsoft said that those patches were supposed to top stop in 2023. There's, uh, uh, well, we'll say leaks from Microsoft that suggest actually they're going to bump that to 2026 for windows seven. Why? Because nobody's leaving it. Why? Because it fucking works. It's feature complete and locked down. Oh, they're not adding new features to windows seven. Good. I'm glad. Don't add another goddamn thing. If anything, please hire a monastic order to run the development, run the code of this thing and leave it alone for all time. You want Windows to do something new? Make software for it. Don't do anything else to the fucking OS already. And I would argue that should be true for mobile devices as well. Um, it's insane. What, what did they announce that um, the latest, speaking of like Apple push notifications, Google's mobile services, GMS, uh, that now requires a device to have more than a gig of RAM. So wait, 
So for the past 10 years ever or, or longer, ever since the first HTC Android phone came out, GMS could function. The ability to get notifications could function on a device that had less, that had a gig of Ram or less. What the fuck happened? What data is being sent that, you know, push notifications need more than a gig of Ram. Like that, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't make sense because do push notifications really do that? I mean, I guess you can make some kind of argument that you can interact with push notifications more, but notifications are notifications. They haven't changed. And that's the problem is, is this is, this is bullshit. This is just forcing people to get new hardware, right? Because if it worked over the past 10 years, if GMS worked over the past 10 years with a gig of Ram or less, there is no reason that it shouldn't continue to other than, well, the operating system is, is hoarding, you know, that much more Ram or whatever. But again, the question becomes, what the fuck is that thing doing? Or what the fuck is GMS put? What is being sent through that? What is, I mean, that, that alone should be terrifying. So again, we could leave all this stuff alone. If it worked 10 years ago, there's no reason it shouldn't work now. And this, this attitude that companies have now, which is blatant and clearly seen, even in this case in point of, you know, features not being in iOS 16, is that we're essentially all running nightly builds. And again, that, that's straight, that's, that's playing with fire. So, uh, but I don't want you to think, please, I don't want you to think that somehow I'm only ripping on Apple. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll rip on Google too. And I'll do that when we come back. Woo! with more Sovereign Tech, baby. Have you had enough of the big name web hosting services that are long on promises, but short on bleeding edge features, uptime and customer service? Or are you just looking for a performance boost for your business's online presence? The answer is Agorist Hosting. Agorist Hosting is the agile web host that offers full concierge service from website redesign, full e-commerce solutions, even custom apps for your Shopify store, and more. All with security, reliability, redundancy, and privacy at the forefront. Oh, and those bleeding edge features? How about hosting your data in a decentralized system like IPFS, the interplanetary file system? Good luck getting that from those other guys. Agoras Hosting is ready to take your web presence into the future. Head over to agoristhosting.com to get started. That's A-G-O-R-I-S-T hosting.com. Agoristhosting.com. Story of the Week. Boy, you want to talk about people that are not going to screw with your data, man, that is Agorist Hosting. And I am so honored, as always, to have them as a sponsor on Sovereign Tech. So cool. Those are just people that are doing it right. Um, who's not doing it right and who is screwing with your data? Well, <laughs> there's, there's a name that comes up pretty quickly with that, and that is none other than Google. And uh, a bit of credit, because the story, so it's our story of the week. Um, and this is going to revisit a subject that I want to say a couple of years ago, we also discussed heavily from a write-up. Um, but it, 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 it's something that really needs repeating every time that it happens and it needs to be talked about, talked about and written about. And I'm impressed because 
you know, there aren't a whole lot of news sites that I go to. A lot of what I look up for Sovereign Tech is often independent research. Um, but I'm impressed by 9to5Google. They are one of the sites that I do go to very regularly, uh, partly because their coverage of Android and Chrome OS um, is is really, really rock solid. Uh, and from, from a, a Ben Schoon, or Schoon? Hope I got his name right. Anyway, he's one of their top writers over there. Uh, from August 22nd, uh, like, I, I have to applaud him because, you know, it's a site that relies upon talking about Google, but then this is a very critical piece against Google. And so, you know, again, I just, I want to appreciate that from nine to five Google. So Ben, thank you for this write up and let's get into it. Headline Google locked parents account over medical photos of their child. It's a good reminder to make backups. Now, just from the headline alone, you can hear the reverberations from what we talked about during the foreplay, right? The reason that I use Dropbox, uh, because if I lose my Dropbox account, it doesn't matter what happens if you, if you lose your Google account, Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> mm. if you ever get that wheel running again, you know what I mean? All right, let's read it. Quote, our Google accounts can, in many cases, be the pillar of our digital lives. One account holds our email, our photos, our documents, and perhaps even the login to our other accounts around the web. It's for that reason that one parent has been living through a terrible situation after Google locked him out of his account, suspecting child abuse due to photos of the parent's son that were taken to get medical help. The New York Times reported this week on a situation uh, of a parent by the name of Mark, whose toddler son had a medical condition that needed diagnosis and used photos to communicate with medical professionals. The father used his Android smartphone to take photos of his son's groin to track the size and progression of an infection. The situation took place in early 2021, still in the midst of the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The photos were taken at the request of a nurse, so the photos could be uh, examined before a video consultation and ultimately led to a prescription for antibiotics that ended up clearing out the infection. So, talking about this for a second, standing breaking in, telemedicine, right? Or telehealth, you know, I mean, a few different terms get used, but telemedicine is one of them. Um, I've actually worked with uh, doctors, you know, like in my PR work, I've worked with them um, who are specialists. And actually, long before the COOF, they were, you know, uh, using telemedicine. This is something that was coming, and we've talked about it over the years on Sovereign Tech. It was coming no matter what. Just the pandemic made it, you know, a necessity, essentially. Um, so, you know, what was being done here, there's nothing wrong here. You know, like this, this only makes sense. Yes. Doctors would ask you. And again, I can say this from professionals in the field. They absolutely would ask you to take pictures of, you know, whatever the infection is and send it to them. Nothing crazy there. So let me read on with the story. Quote, what was the problem then? Two days after the photos were taken, the father received a notification from Google that revealed his accounts had been locked due to harmful content that was a, quote, severe violation of Google's policies and might be illegal, end quote. Google recognized the content is harmful using its uh, content safety API, which uses AI to, quote, proactively identify never before seen CSAM imagery, end quote. The content is then reviewed and, if confirmed, reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, with the account in question locked for further review. In Mark's case, 
the action of these photos being t- uh, backed or being backed up to his Google Photos account counted as the, uh, quote, affirmative action, end quote, that Google needed to scan through the images. Google was then required by federal law to report the images. So let's take a second here, okay? This is, I mean, look, like, for me, okay, if you use, like, say, a Pixel phone, right? A Google Pixel phone. Um, Google Photos has unique, unique to pixels at that, has unique features that are incredibly, I mean, that, that are impressive, right? Like magic eraser, camouflage, other ones, you know, like magic eraser can literally remove entire objects or people out of a picture and make it look like they were never there. Um, now in one sense, that sounds like something out of the running man that would scare the fuck out of people. I get it. But (laughs) what's far more terrifying about Google photos is not that, but what Google photos does in the background. So point being, I will sometimes use Google photos for this editing feature, but the very first thing I do with any new and stock Android phone that I get is in Google photos, I turn off as well as in Google one, you'd have to do it there. If you're a Google one subscriber, um, I turn off photo and video backup. Like that's just not going to happen. And I've been doing that forever. And I mean, when I say forever, at least 10 years, I've been doing that for, uh, and this just vindicates that action because that's considered affirmative action by Google to what that you backing up to their servers gives them the right to look at the data and send it off to the authorities. Am I saying you should turn off all your backups right now? Fuck. Yes, I am. You bet your sweet bippy. You should be turning that off. Now let's keep reading. Okay, I just wanted to bring that up. Yep, you can use Google Photos. I understand why people use Google Photos, but for fuck's sake, do not back up those photos. Honestly, Google, like they 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 rescinded, they reneged on their uh, you know unlimited backup offer anyway. So fuck them. Same thing like when Microsoft engaged in OneDrive Gate. Um, but let's keep reading here. As part of the process, Mark lost access to his email, contacts, photos and even his phone number as he used Google Fi. Google denied Mark's appeals to reopen the account, even after the San Francisco Police Department determined that no crime had occurred. The SPF or the SFPD even tried to reach Mark regarding the verdict, but wasn't able to because the number they had was the Google Fi number that Mark had been locked out of. Mark considered taking Google to court over the situation to get his data back, but it was estimated that the case would cost around $7,000, a price Mark didn't feel was worthwhile. Uh, You know, fuck courts, fuck the legal system, fuck governments. A part of me wouldn't mind it if Mark laid down the 7K. And in fact, if he did like a, a, a GoFundMe about this, I mean, I, I bet there's lawyers who would have lined up to go after them about it you know, to go after Google. Imagine, I mean, to take on Google over something like this, whoo, you might say it was a loser though. And you know, he actually, he might've talked to lawyers. I could believe that lawyers would have told him, Hey, this is having to deal with like potent, what could be, con- what could be construed, misconstrued as child pornography. And it's an instant loser in court. So I could kind of believe that, that maybe that was Mark's more of Mark's thinking because $7,000. Sure. That's life changing for some of us. But in the grand scheme, that's chump change, especially to take on Google. Maybe they were worried about the long haul. But again, I'm sure there are lawyers out there that would have, I mean, they would have turned this into a marquee case. 
Um, I want to address quickly. I'll read more from the story, but I want to address quickly the concern around Google Fi here. There's a simple trick around this. Like I said, I use Google Fi as well. Okay. Um, and this trick isn't exactly foolproof. You, you actually have to go a little bit further. Okay. The, here, here's some, some classic, albeit somewhat recent, also recent, um, uh, tactics that you, for, for like having control over your Android device and over your data and like say your phone number, like I said, Google Fi's data policy is just the best in the world. And that's a major reason why I use Google Fi, right? Um, I've done whole episodes reviewing Google Fi. You can go back to those, or if you really want me to talk about it, you can get in touch with me. Um, but anyway, so what the two things that you can do here, here's what you need to do. You want to set up, and I know for some of us, it's a pretty late in the game because you've probably already put so much data into whatever app, but what you really want to do is you want to set up a separate, um, Gmail account or a separate Google account for all that, that holds all of your apps. That way, if something like happened to Mark here happened to you, you wouldn't actually lose all those app purchases that you've made. And look for some people with like Android gaming, some people spend thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, it's preposterous in my opinion, but I know it happens. Um, so have it be, you know, something where, where all of that stuff is separate. Now on that separate Google account, you're going to want to get an app like my sudo. Okay. And my sudo will actually let you set up an entire different identity, including email address. There's a fee that comes along if you want to use more than one, but you get an email address, you get a phone number, you get the ability to text all of that. And you even get like, it has a built-in web browser that's quote unquote private. And I put that in quotes, but whatever they're, I think their hearts in the right place. Um, and so the phone number you actually want to give out and that you want to use with people is the one through my sudo not the one you want to use. You don't want to use your Google Fi number. Now you could run into an issue with my sudo to be fair. You could run into an issue where, um, like if you use it as a, as a multi-factor authentication number where it may not work, like where PayPal will say, Oh no, we can't send the one-time pin to that number because, uh, you know, it doesn't have varying features. This is the same reason that like Skype phone numbers have become kind of useless. Um, I mean, like as best as possible, you never want to get, you never want SMS to be your multi-factor authenticator anyway. So you really want to get away from that. And I think most services you can get away from SMS as a multi-factor authenticator. Um, and then the ones that you can't would probably still function with my sudo. Okay. So you would set up a phone number with my sudo, um, and, and you never give out your Google find number essentially, uh, and then, you know, and, and then, so, because that way, if this happened and you lose your phone number, you, you lose your Google Fi account, you know, that doesn't become a problem. But again, on those apps, you know, that, that are on that other Google account that hold, you know, that, that controls all the apps and all your purchases, um, you certainly want to try and keep that clean. Okay. So maybe you would use your Google Fi number if you were like texting to the, uh, or sending, you know, photos or whatever to the doctor but I imagine that happened through email, you know, in, in which case you should be using like proton mail or something. I mean, there, there's just, there's a lot of things that could have been done here. I completely empathize and understand why Mark didn't think about it and didn't do it because why would you consider this a problem? Again, he was even cleared of all this bullshit by the San Francisco police department themselves. 
So he was totally in the right. There's no reason that he should think he had have to go through these processes, but I'm just giving you advanced tips on what you can do to avoid this in case you are somebody that happens to be an Android user and you know, that uses like Google's stock Android. Um, but let's read on more with the story. Okay. So, uh, let's see beyond quote beyond Mark's situation, New York times found another nearly identical case that occurred around the same time period, which had been met with the same silence from Google on reversing the situation. Google told New York times that it stood by the decisions. So the New York times of all things reaches out to Google and says, Hey, do you have any comment on this on what you, you know, how you fucked up these people's lives? And Google said, yeah, we stand by what we did. So don't bother trying to reach out to them and trying to get something changed there. I mean, that's, that's going to do jack shit for you. Google cares about you. The tech giants care about you. <laughs> Please. <sighs> All right. Anyway, uh, so let's see. In a statement to The Verge around the situation, Google stood by its actions. Here's Google's exact words. Quote, child sexual abuse material, CSAM, is abhorrent and we're committed to preventing the spread of it on our platforms. We follow U.S. law in defining what constitutes CSAM and use a combination of hash matching technology and artificial intelligence to identify it and remove it from our platforms. Additionally, our team of child safety experts reviews flagged content for accuracy and consults with pediatricians to help ensure we're able to identify instances where users may be seeking medical advice. Well, end quote. I guess that didn't work out this time, huh, Google? I guess you didn't do your due diligence. Why anyone trusts these companies and don't think it's just Google. I know I already spent a while ripping on Apple, but let's do a little bit more. That entire fiasco around, you know, how they were going to go through iMessage and they were going to go through, like they were going to do uh, local scanning on your phone or, well, that was part of the argument. Then they kind of changed their mind and, Either way, Apple will do this too. The problem is, if it gets to the point, I mean, where, where there is nowhere to run, is if it gets to the point that they will scan on, they will scan your pictures on device, not on cloud. That's where things, and, and are things going in that direction? I think there's an argument that they could be, including with Google. I mean, again, like part of the reason they developed, um, you know, Tensor, their own, their own mobile processor, which they did in conjunction with Samsung. Um, part of the reason that they did that was to allow for better on-device, on-board, non-cloud processing power, like more parallel processing power on the device to bolster, you know, artificial intelligence and all of that. Um, one of the things that a Tensor chip would be supremely designed for would be to scan all of your data on-device and be able to pick out, you know, problematic issues or what Google and the federal government would consider to be problematic issues or, you know, problematic material on your device. So, um, I mean, Hey, look, do, do you hear me that I'm not telling you to stop using a smartphone? That's the easy thing to say. And should people do that? Yes. <laughs> but I also understand me as a working person, you know, and so on that these things are, you know, their infrastructure and they've in many ways become essential to work. Um, especially with like, say with remote work, which I do, uh, you know, that's not exactly an option. If you want, if you're just trying to like, you know, put food on the table, keep a roof over your head and make a buck. So I get that. So that's why I'm not like going that distance. Yeah, I can say it 
and it is the ultimate solution, but there we are. Um, I want to read, it's just a couple paragraphs. I want to read 95 Google's take on this, and that's exactly what they call it. Here we go. Quote, needless to say, this is a nightmare scenario for many, uh, especially with Google's apparent indifference in reinstating the account after authorities confirmed there was no crime committed. But it also serves as a good reminder for a few things. First and foremost, it's a reminder to make backups. Google makes this relatively easy with takeout. Uh, that's takeout with a capital T offering a way to download your entire account's worth of data using a single tool with formats that can help you keep the data for later. Uh, Stallion breaking in on that one. Not everything allows you to use other apps. That's a problem, but we'll keep going. Quote, secondly, it's a good reminder to not keep all your eggs in one basket. So they, uh, so to say using a Google account to hold all of your information is convenient, but it might not always be the best thing knowing how Google tends to react when it closes accounts. Mark's story is far from the first example of Google shutting down an account unexpectedly and turning a blind eye on appeals. Um, yeah, I mean like, you know, the, the one that I think few people, so that, that's the end of the story there. But I think one, one of the things that few people really consider is your contacts file. Now, fortunately, you know, exporting it as a CSV is easy to do even within like, you know, your Google, you don't even need Google takeout to do that. Okay. You should constantly be making backups of your contacts file. Why? Because, you know, this isn't the 1990s and back anymore. People don't remember phone numbers and you might totally forget how to get in touch with certain people. Um, I mean, and, and then it becomes an even bigger issue. Like your contacts file might even be what controls, um, you know, your email, uh, list, what you have as far as, you know, emails for people, um, and people certainly, well, actually I will say this. I do think people remember emails pretty well. Like I can remember emails way better than I remember, you know, anybody's phone number. And I remember a lot of emails. So you do have that as kind of a backup. Basically everybody has an email today. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't think many people consider just how uh, uh, powerful, how by the balls Google can have you just with your contacts, uh, uh, you know, information with your contacts app. So this is a warning. There are solutions. There are ways to mitigate this from affecting you. You know, things from as simple as using Dropbox for what, you know, for, for document creation and document editing and collaboration online. Um, because again, you lose that no big whoop. Of course, you still want to make backup backups of those, um, to going so far as, you know, like using my pseudo sending that phone number out using different, and you know, don't use your Gmail address as your main email address. Go ahead and use proton mail for that. Um, you know, everybody should really have, like, I don't think you should have thousands of email addresses and I know many of us do, but you should at least have two right? Because we're all kind of forced into having, even Apple users are often forced into having a Gmail account, but then you should really have a completely independent email address. Like, yeah, I have an iCloud email address. I have a Gmail address. I even have an Outlook address. Okay. You know, that, that has to do with using varying devices that I have at an operating system level. Like it's become a requirement and I'm a tech journalist. And so, you know, I do check things out. There's a, there's reasons why I have these things, but you know, like my, main email addresses are independent, like Fastmail, right? Like the Sovereign Tech, you know, email addresses and so on. That's all through Fastmail. I do not have that attached. I would not have such an important way of communicating with me attached to something that could go through this bullshit 
that this family, this nightmare that this family had to go through because they were just trying to take care of their kid properly. So consider that. We'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Science. Outer space. Psychology. Book and movie recommendations. Fiction from the Sovereign Universe. Travels to points of mystery and the unexplained. And even spirituality? All of that can only mean one thing. The Sovereign Technica Newsletter. By me, Ellen Sovereign. Along with some stuff by that crazy man I call my husband, Dr. Brian Sovereign. It's the latest tool in your self-directed education. The education that really matters. If you want to cut through the crap of mainstream media ass clowns, sign up for the Sovereign Technica newsletter right now at sovereign.substack.com. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N.substack.com. The Sovereign Technica newsletter. Welcome to the future. Listener's choice. Ooh, man, let me tell you, if you are not reading the Sovereign Technica newsletter, you are missing out. I mean, I, like, I can't tell you, I get excited when it comes out and I write, I don't know, a quarter of it. Uh, not that I need to reread my shit, but I just love reading what Ellen puts down. So if you're not checking that out, you do that. You go to sovereign.substack.com, just like the ad says, and I mean, get your hookup. And again, if you want the complete edition, everything that's there, $7 a month, come on, you're getting completely independent journalism research, you know, or and great internet curation or, you know, well, just curation. I think it's worth it. So, and I did look, believe me, I do. I, I subscribe to it as well. Again, I'm, I'm one of the writers. <laughs> uh, and, and if actually, if you look through it, like we want other people to get involved with the newsletter, you you are welcome to write for it. We're not going to put everything that gets sent to us. Uh, you know, it's got to go through a review process, but we would love to interact and get sovereign tech listeners, uh, you know, and others, not just sovereign tech listeners. Cause a lot of people that subscribe to it aren't even sovereign tech listeners, you know? And, and I think that's amazing that this is getting that kind of growth. Um, you know, like, yeah, we want to hear from you. We want you to be a part of it. Um, it's just, it's such an exciting thing. I love what's going on with Substack. Uh, but anyway, we're not here to talk about that. Well, speaking of listeners, actually, we are here to talk about that. And that's our segment listeners choice, where, uh, I will talk about, sometimes it's a story you send me. Sometimes it's a question you ask me, uh, and I will talk about it right here. And we have an absolute doozy, uh, that, like I said, I called audible on this one. I was going to, uh, I was going to do an Amazon story. I'll save that for next week. I want to get into this one and it's coming from decrypt by, uh, Kate Irwin, who's a longtime writer in the blockchain space. Uh, yeah, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> we're going to talk about NFTs. Ooh, 
Uh, yeah. Should it be no fucking thanks? Of course. Said that a million times. But yeah, let's talk about those supposedly non-fungible tokens, even though we know uh, that they are not so non-fungible. But this story is from September 7th, 2022, so incredibly fresh. Here we go. Headline, NFT game consultant says poor people could be NPCs. Do you know what an NPC is? An NPC is a non-player character. It's basically the bystander when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons or Star Trek Adventures or something like that. Uh, or if you're playing Vampire the Masquerade. It's the people that get their blood sucked dry while the game master is setting up the next trap. Poor people. Interesting. Let's read it. Uh, <laughs> the, the subheader is, it sounds like being a host in Westworld, but less fun. Here we go. Uh, quote, players in developing countries could work as NPCs in wealthier players' worlds, according to one game consultant. Quote, with the cheap labor... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what it is. It's not like these people are fucking living in squalor. It's cheap labor. With the cheap labor of a develop of a developing country, you can, at least they said developing country, and they didn't say like third world shithole. That's nice. Um, you could use people in the Philippines. You could use people in the Philippines because oh, that's some kind of backwater fucking country. Are you kidding me? I have friends from there. Vic, she's a genius. Wouldn't you say that, Ellen? Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. Anyway, shout out. So, <laughs> she's practically running the company. She's, oh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, or she will eventually. Um, here we go. So, with the cheap labor of a developing country, you could use people in the Philippines as NPCs, non-playable characters, real-life NPCs in your game, end quote said uh mikai i'm not going to pronounce this right uh mikai kosar who is a chartered accountant and member of wolves dao uh kosar told rest of world that players in developing countries could quote just populate the world maybe do a random job or just walk back and forth fishing telling stories a shopkeeper anything is really possible end quote because these people just exist to play your game that's all they are they're poor what value do they have other than just being in the background like somebody in Skyrim without the epic voice of Tony Amendola, unfortunately? According to Wolves, DA Wolves DAO's membership application form, its mission is to, quote, equip the blockchain gaming sector with key insights, education, and tools to build the games and communities to of tomorrow, end quote. It looks like you missed out on the education because most people, I think, with an education, or at least I would hope, would not use people from a country like the Philippines, or really any country for that matter, to just be the person in the background who's, you know, oh, here, sir, let me sell you this uh, fine sword. Reading on. The future community apparently could be a dystopian one. Yes, Kate, I think you're right. Some find the idea of making real-life people across the globe role-play as automaton-like NPCs dehumanizing. Oh, no, say it ain't so. Say it ain't so. It's dehumanizing to just use people as, like, your background noise. Oh, what? It's not like they're alive or anything. It's not like they're flesh and blood. You know, I'm going to stop for a second. This is a byproduct of people thinking, like, 
asshat Elon Musk of people thinking that we live in a simulation because we're all NPCs. In some little kid's advanced version of The Sims. No. (laughs) We're not. You're wrong. And this is what happens when you espouse crap like that, Elon. Moving on. Quote, People are coming up with fresh ideas for how citizens of the third world can be put to productive use by wealthy Westerners, end quote, wrote longtime video game journalist Andy Chalk. Quote, it's an odious idea, perfectly in character for the NFT field (laughs) and literally the dictionary definition of exploitation, end quote. (laughs) I mean, sure, when you can monetize like like Andy Chalk's totally right about this, because when you're. When you can monetize something that is totally free, like a JPG, or if you go to the Pirate Bay, like an album, an MP3 album, when you're able to dupe people, get them into thinking that, oh yeah, I can charge a billion dollars for this or something like that. Yeah. I I mean, that's absolutely in character for the NFT field, because these are people who think that you should charge for something for existing. Everything that exists should have a value on OpenSea. Everything that exists should be tradable for ETH. I just want to say kiss my ass, but I'll keep reading. It also raises questions surrounding the ethics of Web3 gaming more generally, where quote-unquote scholars in developing countries already play with NFTs they can't afford to own in play-to-earn blockchain games while NFT owners reap a percentage of the profits. Yeah, all right, I'm going to break in on this part as well. Because this is going on. What is it? What is it? Axiom Infinity? Some of these other, like, uh, uh, you know, NFT-based, blockchain-based, Web3 games. And, hey, I've already written off Web3. I've already covered that. Go back to my episode. I think it's titled, I Was Right, Jack. And I'll get into, I I, I ripped to shreds that whole notion of of Web3. But anyway, um, the point, you know, like, there is this idea, and it's called GameFi you know, there's all these other ideas where they just keep adding fi to the fi to the end of it. It's it's something. Whenever you see somebody add fi, and that includes Google Fi, if somebody adds fi to the to to, to the end of a term, um, you know, your shield should go up. You know, Captain Picard to the bridge. No, Captain Kirk, not Picard. Fuck him. So, <laughs> Ellen just reacted badly. I, I mean, the new Picard. You know, no. <laughs> But I, I, I really, I have a hard time watching The Next Generation. Anyway, Ellen's behind me painting here. I, I love it. This is wonderful. There's so much, this is just the creative juices that flow in this house. I mean, that just pour out of me, or, well, and onto, wait, sorry. <laughs> uh, the creative juices that just flow throughout this home, through these four walls, is uh, is truly remarkable. <laughs> so... Anyway, um, yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about that a little more uh, when we get to a later segment. Uh, no, we're not going to talk about that part of it. <laughs> but, but what I was getting at, okay, so this FI, game FI, the idea is, or or like they said, pay to, or play to earn. The idea is that just by playing the game, you earn real world money, in this case, in the shape of, you know, some kind of digital token, you know, something on a blockchain or like an NFT. Um, this in and of itself in my opinion, like it, it's hard for, 
it's hard for it to not also be seen as exploitation because basically like you have people just going through the drudgery of a game instead of playing the game for just the pure joy of doing the remarkable in a game, which video games are rarely, or, you know, I don't want to say uniquely suited, but they are uh, specially suited to allow for. I mean, one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of video games is because it shows you potentially what's possible. And I mean, there's, there's a lot more, you know, involved with that, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so GameFi effectively says that, no, you're not here for the joy of the game. You're here to make a buck. And in my opinion, that just kills what makes video games great because you rip the joy out of it. And that's not just NFTs. There's a lot of parts of modern gaming that, that engages in that. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. So yeah, this play to earn concept, I am not on board. Um, but let me keep reading here. The potential for, uh, sentience and the ethics of exploiting, uh, NPCs as disposable beings has been a staple of science fiction recently explored in HBO's Westworld or last year or last year's Ryan Reynolds led Hollywood action comedy free guy. Um, Free guy is better than Westworld, but anyway, all, all bullshit reading on, but role-playing as an NPC isn't necessarily dystopian in every context. Gamers in role-play servers for Grand Theft Auto five, like no pixel, for example, already volunteer to act as characters who work in various positions in the virtual world, whether it's as a mechanic, a stripper or a bartender, they're effectively role-playing as NPCs for free. Some role-play servers are highly curated with wait lists of hopefuls wanting to get in. Um, all right, let me comment on that. I think that that's a very different situation, meaning that these are people who have chosen to act as NPCs and they get joy out of the game in being NPCs. But that is, let's be honest in the, let's take the percentages. Cause like to say, like, I get where Kate's coming from here. All right. Um, and overall, I agree with the commentary. Like I'm not, not, not knocking her at all. Uh, but here's the difference. Like, look at the amount of people who are willing to be these kinds of NPCs for free in a game like GTA five. And then look at the amount of people who play GTA five. I, I doubt it's even a 10th of the player base is involved in wanting to be free NPCs. Okay. So th- this is a, like a rare part. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying that it's a rare part of, um, the user base, you know, of, of people in general that are interested in doing this. So, you know, I don't think that it shows like some kind of pathway, you know, really, for these kinds of people, there's video games that are made for these kinds of people who just like to be, you know, kind of like bystanders as life goes on and like Stardew Valley or animal crossing or whatever, you know, like there are games for this kind of person that does not mean that they have to be like, you know, the, (laughs) the NPC for some wealthy shitholes. So Reading on, um, when it comes to paid metaverse employment, there's also a whole world of virtual jobs in games like Roblox, which doesn't use any cryptocurrency, but some argue that Roblox's, uh, Roblox's underage creators are being exploited and don't take home the wages they deserve. Yeah. That's the point I was making, like with Axiom Infinity and a lot of play to earn where 
the percentage of what you put into these games and you, you as the game player are the backbone of the game, uh, is wildly out of line, uh, with what the companies that make the game are making off of you, you know? And so like that, that's a problem in itself. But anyway, that we'd have to get into, uh, labor theories <laughs> you know, to, to go further on that. Uh, but to end it off as metaverse worlds come to market, so too may a whole new realm of employment, but some jobs are sure to raise more eyebrows than others. Kassar has not yet responded to decrypts request for comment. And I don't imagine he's going to ever respond to that, uh, because it's one of the dumbest fucking things that anybody could say. Um, I mean, I think I got to the point with a lot of this, but this is ultimately, this is what happens And it's sad because it's a reversal. And if this is, if NFTs are a core part of web three, and if GameFi is a core part of web three, it just shows more of the bullshit of web three, where web three is just, you know, it's not really solving the problems of web two. If anything, it's exacerbating them. Um, Not only that, it's eliminating what could be argued to be the good things that came out of web 2.0. I'm not saying there's a whole lot of those, but one of the good things that did come out of the internet is it honestly called bullshit on a lot of our concepts of property because suddenly, you know, you have MP3s, you have EPUB files, you have PDFs, you have, you know, uh, uh, whatever MP4s, right. Or, you know, you have MKV files, you have all these things that, you know, where, where, so much information got set free, right? And you had pictures, art that could be shared, that could be created quickly, right? Because computers, not just the internet, but computers themselves became so powerful. The PC, the personal computer became so powerful that it democratized the ability to create on a very high level. And then you created platforms where that art could be shared, Okay. And it's a beautiful thing. And the people that, you know, deserved, uh, uh, recognition and reward perhaps for their work would get it out of the kindness of other people's hearts, not because that person thought that they were going to get some kind of value outside of, you know, like the supporting the amazing work that was going on in and of itself. Um, you know, like they didn't need that. They, they didn't really add any, any thought to reward. They just were like, wow, that's amazing what you did. Like, I mean, I, you know, as a podcaster, there are so many people who, you know, they, they either subscribe through Patreon or whatever, or have just donated over time, just saying, thank you for what you put out there. I do this podcast anyway, because it's what I love. That's why I'm still here. And so many others are gone, including in the spaces that I've traditionally run. But, you know, there are people who've been very, very gracious to me. They don't expect anything in return. And I'm honored by that. But with NFTs and with Web3, with GameFi, with all this stuff, oh, no, 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 no. This is a transaction, jackass. You're, you, you know, <laughs> you're, you're a product and I'm buying. Like, it's... It just goes against what the internet had finally started to set free, finally started to rewrite within our minds, our concepts, again, of things like property and others, okay, uh, and the economy in general, and it's just bringing it all back to the 20th century, and I don't say that in a good way.
dystopian? Yeah, you're right. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech. Um, yeah, and no NFTs. Please, thank you. Hey, baby, I know, I know. You are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup and it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. Shall we play a game? Woo! All right. Let's calm it down. We're on the back half of the show here. Two hours of nonstop action. Um, let's get into, let's talk about, well, what we were just talking about, but we'll talk about them in the good way. Let's talk about video games. Now, I'm not going to say every time that we go through the uh, would you like to play a game, uh, you know, segment that it's always going to be positive. Um, But, you know, this is this is one where it certainly is. Uh, I actually talked about this recently on Patreon content. And if you want to sign up for that, as I mentioned earlier, of course, just go to patreon.com slash sovereign tech. A lot of different uh, 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 levels that you can join at. But man, the Discord channel is hot and happening. And that is Patreon only, baby, as well as the weekly Q&As um, and many more types of episodes um, that get released only to Sovereign Tech patrons. And uh, it's my, I do that as a thank you to you. It is not a transaction. It is a thank you. I am honored that you would pay for me or pay me to do what I do. And I want to give something back. And when that takes the shape of a Q and a where you ask me questions and I, you know, tell you what I think, and I'm doubly honored that you even care <laughs> what I think. It's not a transaction. That's, that's, that's just pure gift and value for value, frankly. So it's a thank you. But uh, yeah, so thank you to all the patrons already out there. And thank you to those who sign up uh, uh, in the future. So let's talk about games. Um, and this is something fairly new for me. Speaking of things landing in my lap, I had a PlayStation three, particularly it was a super slim model, uh, end up in my lap and I'm honored by that. Um, and this, I, I talked about this on Patreon, like I said, but I'll just, you know, briefly recap here. Um, I had essentially other than the Nintendo switch and like the three DS. And of course I do love the PS Vita, which is just about the greatest you know, once you put custom firmware on it, it's pretty much the greatest console ever made. Um, once you put custom firmware on it on its own stock, I take it or leave it. It's still great, but you know, it doesn't excite me, but once you put that custom firmware on, oh man, it's, it's, it's on. Um, but I had basically written off everything, uh, after the sixth generation of consoles, sixth generation being of course, PlayStation two dreamcast would technically fit in there. The original Xbox and the Nintendo GameCube. Uh, all phenomenal systems in their day and must haves. But, you know, everything previous to that, I also love, obviously, you know, Sega Saturn, PlayStation, go down the list, uh, SNES, NES, Odyssey 2, all of it. Um, so I'd written off everything after that, though. Uh, but after some experience with getting to see in action the PlayStation 3 from Sony, 
which is an ancient console now that we're at PlayStation 5, right? Um, and there's some debate as to whether it should be considered a retro gaming console. I am going to argue yes, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain more on that. Because like the Vita, once you put custom firmware on a PlayStation 3, uh, it really opens up a world of possibilities. So, but I experienced the PlayStation 3 as a Blu-ray player. And let me just say this, as somebody who has a stupidly large collection of Blu-rays and DVDs, uh, no 4K, thank you, um, I, like I never want them. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, there, there's a point, I mean, and this actually speaks to what we're talking about. I'll say this quickly. There's a point, you know, and there's an old term, right? Appropriate technology. Uh, there's a point where, and we've said this on Sovereign Tech many times, where you innovate past perfection. And I think that 4K has innovated past perfection because 4K has, like, movies are supposed to look unreal. Even movies that take place in the modern world are still meant to, like, look like a movie. They're, they're filmed in a way that they're meant to look unreal. 4K makes it look like you're watching, you know, like home video, like you're watching something you recorded on your smartphone or something like that. Like it makes it look like it's actually happening right in front of you, but that's not how cinema is supposed to work. So to my mind, 1080p for, and among many other reasons, I'm just bringing up one, uh, is the pinnacle of, you know, visual presentation technology. Um, so yeah, fuck 4k bottom line. So the PlayStation three though is far and away the best Blu-ray player out there, uh, just far and away. I mean, like, especially if you get the official remote control for the PlayStation three, I mean, like it's awesome. Now, when you put custom firmware on there as well, it becomes a region free Blu-ray player, which is great because there are a lot of Blu-rays. Uh, I mean, in fact, big releases from like arrow and some others, uh, that have never been brought to region one have never been in that case, never been brought to North America, to the United States. Um, like I think of like Arrow Films release of Zardoz. Yes, that's a good movie. We reviewed it on Sovereign Tech. We talked about that. It's good shit now. I didn't always think that, but I know now. Um, Zardoz, uh, the remastered version of Frank Herbert's Dune. Not, not the whatever that Denise Villeneuve put out there. I'm talking about the Sci-Fi Channel one. Um, and there, there's many others. Uh, you know that 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 just for whatever reason hasn't gotten like a great release um, in the colonies. So th there's, there's a reason to have, uh, you know, a, a full on like region free Blu-ray player and you can get them independently as well, but the PlayStation three can just do it so well. Um, so I saw that and I was like, man, I really wouldn't mind a PlayStation three, even just to play Blu-rays. But then you find out when you put custom firmware on it, uh, that it can actually do so much more. Um, now there's, there's some tricks to this, but I want to talk about what the so much more is basically it's the best PlayStation two out there. There are PlayStation three games that I would want to play. Um, but they don't excite me as much as the insane catalog that the PlayStation two has. And also that the PlayStation one has both of which can be played on any PlayStation three. If you have custom firmware installed. Um, you don't have to worry about like, it, it, I mean, it gets done through emulation instead of hardware emulation, like the early full fat, uh, PlayStation threes, but that doesn't really matter when you get to this point of running custom firmware and the way that it's been developed. I mean, th these PS two and PS one games just run like butter 
and, and of course, so do the PlayStation 3 games. Um, you can also play PlayStation Portable games that way, which there's some value in that, particularly like with the Power Stone collection that was released on PlayStation Portable. That, frankly, that's worth owning a PSP on its own. That was reason enough to own a Dreamcast, but now you don't even have to do that. Um, it really, you know, PlayStation 2 uh, emulation is far from perfect on just about any platform um, except for singularly the PlayStation three, like just totally does it right. Um, takes a little bit of work. I put a link in the show notes to show you how to get started on putting custom firmware on a PlayStation three. But if you're looking for a kick-ass Blu-ray player and access to, I mean, and you can go beyond Sony's libraries. Like you can put emulators for all kinds of consoles, um, on the PS three that go from, you know, sixth generation back. Uh, I mean, and it just does a bang up job because the PS three is you know, the processor that's in there is a literal supercomputer. Uh, so you, you've got it. You got a lot of balls on that. And then, and like I said, there are great PlayStation three games, I think to pick up, uh, like the best version of command and conquer red alert three came out for PlayStation three. Um, you know, there's soul caliber games. There's, there's quite a few to, to check out in that as well. So that makes it worthwhile. Uh, but again, I put a link in the show notes. Now I want to be clear here because you want to be very careful over how you want to handle the custom firmware on a PlayStation three. Uh, and you'll find differing opinions on, you know, what version of the PlayStation three you could get, because there have been three different models. There is the, the, you know, the fat boy, as they call it, or the fat version, which is the original PlayStation three that has like the Spider-Man lettering on it. Um, that one can do anything. And if you get one of those, even though they're prone to overheating and varying hardware failures, um, you're going to have the easiest and best time with custom firmware on there because you can actually rewrite the firmware on it. Now, after that version came the PS4 or the PS3 Slim, not super slim, PS3 Slim. The PS3 Slim, half of them you can treat the same way that you treat uh, the, the fat PS3, where you can completely rewrite the basically the OS on uh, the PlayStation 3. But then there's the other half and they're from the model numbers 2,500 and up that you have to actually run what's called PS3 Hen. Hen is similar to what runs on a Vita as well, but with a Vita, you don't have to like constantly start it up. Hen, you don't actually rewrite the entire firmware with a PS3 Slim that's 2,500 model number 2,500 up. And this is also true for the Super Slim. You don't actually rewrite the firmware. You effectively cheat it every time and you have to launch hen every time you start up a uh slim you know 2500 plus slim or a super slim so if you want like an out of the box perfectly offline working uh situation with custom firmware on a ps3 you're gonna want to get a PS three slim that's under those model numbers, or you want to get it. You're going to want to get an original PS three, you know, one of the fat ones, um, as to where, I mean, you know, here's the thing though. Like, so I have a super slim and I have to launch hen every time that I boot it up. Um, and it does have to connect to the internet to make that work. Uh, but at the same time, like, you know, if the internet is gone in the world, you know, where I can't do that, uh, I'm probably not going to be playing my PlayStation three. <laughs> so I like having offline functionality, make no mistake. I prefer that, but honestly you can get like a super slim for a significantly lower price, uh, than, you know, any of the other models. So 
that's something to consider, you know, if you want to try this, but I think it's totally worthwhile and use that money to get a gigantic, like one terabyte hard drive or something, you know, or two ter- Well, I think it might top out at like one terabyte, but you can put larger hard drives in these very easily. I mean, they just pop off, like they're designed to have the hard drive replaced on them. So, and then you can load again, you know, tons of PS2, uh, ISOs on there and you don't even need the disc. You can just same with the PS3 games. You just run them right off of the hard drive. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful solution. Again, why own a PS3? Because it's a great Blu-ray player and it's the best PS2 available out there. Also because it connects natively via HDMI. So you don't have to do any upconverting with a PS2. So that's my recommendation for, uh, you know, would you like to play a game as far as, I mean, we'll get into, we'll review games here. We'll do all that kind of stuff. Like we always did with, uh, you know, classic game talk and gaming grid. Um, but yeah, I want to recommend, like if, if you're looking to get into gaming, this is a great route to get started. Link in the show notes to show you how we'll be right back with more sovereign tech. Journey into the far reaches of aqua space. From Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment Inc. and Universal Television comes a journey into the future and beneath the sea. Roy Scheider stars in Sequest DSV. You can watch Sequest by downloading it from your favorite torrent site or getting it on glorious DVD. For beneath the surface lies the future. You know, this is a segment that, um, man, has had a long and storied history where it's been in, you know, like it was a a major part of Sovereign Tech for many years. And then it was so popular, like, or then I, I, cause I used to, and I still do this where I trade out segments every, you know, however many episodes, 25, some odd episodes. Um, and when I took it out, there was an uproar and I'm like, well, I, I, I kind of have the show planned in this way. I can't really just add it in. So what I'll do is I made it like Patreon only. Um, and that is the album of the week segment. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that people love this so much. Um, now, so it was a part of Patreon episodes for, you know, the past year or so. Um, now on Patreon, I actually do a movie of the week there, uh, that people really dig. And, So we're bringing the album of the week back into the main show. And we are opening up this album of the week. I mean, with a doozy, definitely a runner up for album of the year might not be album of the year of the year. I might've heard a couple albums here and there, uh, that are better. Like, man, that new Megadeth is fucking insane. Um, but this album is by a guy who to my mind kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, but he's a genius. (laughs) <laughs> like he, he's playing on a whole other level. Um, and that is Michael palace. Uh, of course for his releases, he just goes by the, you know, the band name of palace, but he basically, I think plays all of the instruments. Um, I don't know that he ever even goes on tour though. Boy, I would be there with panties coming off. If palace were, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're coming to the States or something and then coming to the colonies and doing a show. Um, anyway, so his 2020 album, Rock and Roll Radio was easily album of the year. In fact, I could I could argue 
that it was album of the decade. I mean, it, it was like that and uh, From Hell with Love by Beasts in Black, you know, were very much neck and neck. Uh, just phenomenal fucking albums. Um, his new album for 2022, which has been out for a couple months now, uh, that being One for the Road is the name of it. And it's with the number four when it says For the Road uh, is it's not as strong as rock and roll radio. I think it's stronger than his previous albums. Like it stands a bit taller than binary music and masters of the universe as far as overall presentation. Um, but I mean, the strength of the songs, especially in the beginning, it's not as strong as rock and roll radio. Again, that's just one of the best albums of all time. So I don't expect him to be able to pull that off every time, but this is still overall an incredibly strong showing, um, opens right up with 15 minutes, uh, westbound. I mean, it's 11 tracks. There's only one track on there that has a little bit of a country flair. I don't mind it after listening to it a few times, but it's got a little bit of a twang to it that I was like, eh, come on. I, I don't need that, but it was fine. Uh, but th- there's just, there's some amazing, I mean, this is all like really uplifting music. Uh, some of it is high energy, not as high energy as rock and roll radio. Like that album will give you a heart attack kind of like a sovereign tech episode will <laughs> it, it, it you'd think it was powered by a, a nuclear generator or something it's just insane um but but this album still has a great energy great upbeat energy which is something that i think we we really need um so if you want to check it out living the life that's another track that i really uh, uh dug off of it um loneliest night i mean there there are great great songs on here uh so even though it's not as strong as rock and roll radio i still think that you know you're getting some of the best music today and we really need to have a conversation around music today Uh, and i think we'll be doing that during a listener's choice segment in upcoming episodes but anyway check it out you know if you dig some rock and roll and that's what this is you know i mean this is some real hard rock you know melodic hard rock if you dig that kind of stuff you're going to love everything by palace uh but one for the road was a really strong showing but i'll tell you start off with rock and roll radio and you'll know what i mean and you're going to have a great time i'll be back with more sovereign tech Woo! from big finish productions blake seven the classic audio adventures i'm taking liberator in on manual we'll be in teleport range in two minutes what the hell was that Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr Avon. Kerr Avon. Our hostage arrives. But you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com. and the strange that's right a new segment the ancient and the strange 
And this is one that, you know, over the years, and I mean, you know, we're at episode 490 here, so it's been years, been a decade, more. Um, this is something, so, you know, I, I've always said that I'm a gamer first, a historian second, and a tech journalist third. Now, one of the things besides the, I guess what we could call the philosophy, uh, you know, that, that keep, that I've heard from you, I'm not saying it, that I've heard from listeners that keeps you coming back to Sovereign Tech as compared to other tech shows, uh, is my injection of historical topics and of the strange, you know, and sometimes that strange goes into the esoteric. Uh, and and that's what people really love. And I've never really had like a specific segment for that kind of stuff. And I think it's time as we're getting close to episode 500, I think it's time that we do that, that we have that be a part of it. Now, with that said, this also ushers in, um, what I think some listeners who perhaps listened on a more superficial level, uh, might surprise, like I want, there are parts of, there are things that look technology and this isn't new for sovereign tech, even technology has just become so like electrical technology, advanced technology has just become so fucking pervasive. There is not a part of life that it doesn't touch. Okay. Whether it's politics, religion, health, um, you know, how you decide to brush your teeth. Like it's everywhere. It's everything. It's in everything. And it's affecting all parts of what makes you a human being. And it's almost unavoidable. Like you've really got to go far and run away and give up a lot of shit to get away from, you know, the surveillance society that we live in. If you even can do that, you know, say hello to whatever dumbass satellites Elon's putting up. So with that in mind, you know, and, and there, there's an inverse, you know, uh, uh, conversation to have on that in that technology really isn't like t- technology as defined in the dictionary goes far beyond and is applicable to far more than just something that you power with electricity or even steam or, you know, take your pick of whatever, you know, technology can be something, uh, well here I'll I'll just, I'll pull from the American heritage dictionary, uh, fifth edition. And one of the definitions is especially anthropologically, the body of knowledge available to a society that is of use in fashioning implements, practicing manual arts and skills and extracting or collecting materials. Um, basically, I mean, and there's more like, there's a great book, the technological society that talks about this, that like even just like plans, like the way you set up how your little group or tribe, uh, you know, handle situations and communicates is a technology. Um, and I would argue and this is the statement that's probably might bother some people. Um, but if it does, well, you know, let me make my case and we'll see. Uh, I would argue that, well, as I've said on sovereign tech in the past, that the human body itself is a technology. And as the human body is made up of, you know, mind body and dare I say thought or spirit, I don't like that word spirit, but I'm going to get into that. Relax. Um, you know, that is a part of the conversation that has to be brought into to either combat or interact with the technology in general that you think of when it comes to computers, smartphones or 
TVs or, you know, again, whatever, your electric toothbrush, take your pick, whatever that happens to be. And, you know, historically, I've bristled at the term spirituality and I've bristled at religion and I still do bristle at religion, by the way. Um, But spirituality is a term that I've felt that I've had to basically, you know, like painfully come to terms with and just accept because there's no other word that readily expresses certain aspects of the human condition to other people. And so for the efficiency of communication, um, I've basically, it's become a necessity. So what I'm going to do here, because when we get into the subjects of the ancient and the strange, there are things that would be seen as occult, esoteric, mystical, and otherwise that I would argue actually have what would be what we could call scientific basis. Um, and that are provable that, uh, that we're going to encounter. And so when I use the term spirituality, I need you to know what exactly I mean by that. When I am talking about the mystical or the divine, I need you to know exactly what I'm talking about when I do that, because it is core to discussing the ancient and the strange and even, you know, ancient technology. Like, I mean, for many, for many, many years on sovereign tech, I've talked about the mana machine, right? Which comes right out of the, the, you know, the Jewish book of Zohar, which is a, basically it is an advanced technology that is what fed quote unquote, the quote unquote Israelites, you know, in the quote unquote desert. So, you know, like there are points where this is going to talk about technology, but again, technology is so pervasive. Honestly, any tech show out there could talk about whatever they want to talk about and still call themselves a tech show. And I am relegating this a bit more to a specific segment, but it is something that will bleed into the rest of the show because I think that it is part of solution to a lot of the problems that we end up discussing every week on Sovereign Tech. Because look, in case you didn't get it from the first half of this episode, talking about consumer technology, it is very hard for that to be a positive thing. And it is constantly about defense, 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 defense against this technology, you know, invading your, uh, um, you know, your, your, your human dignities. So with that said, what I am going to do now is I'm going to read for you, um, from, I'm going to do an audio version here of the spirituality section that I write every issue of the sovereign technica newsletter because in that first issue this is exactly what i wanted to address i was saying hey dr sovereign here i'm going to start talking about the esoteric the occult the mystical uh i'm going to start talking about spirituality and here's where i'm coming from here's where i'm at here's my definitions okay so that way this doesn't come off as like broadsiding you in future episodes so i'm going to get into that right here as far as why I wasn't so brazen and open about talking about spirituality in the past, because nothing has changed for me to be clear. As far as my thoughts on these things, they've always been there and they've always been laced in sovereign tech. They've just sometimes had to been laced in code. You honestly, like I'm not going to recover that here. You would have to become a patron. And I've talked about it in quite a few episodes, quite a few Q and A's, um, in the past in 2022. So I recommend you do that. That's not me trying to make money off the situation. That's just me trying to save my breath. All right. So 
Let me read it here. This is from issue one of the Sovereign Technica newsletter in the spirituality segment. On my show, Sovereign Tech, I've made it abundantly clear many times that I am not a fan of the term spirituality. In my experience, it's a term that gets used for dismissive and throwaway explanations for matters and phenomena of and gets too readily interchanged and lumped in with the supernatural and supernaturalism. Worse, it gets used as a descriptor for existential and experiential concepts around a capital G God of the Sky Daddy variety, a concept that I am more than happy to continue to disprove and denounce. I'll make it clear here, too. There is no Sky Daddy. So why am I writing a column titled Spirituality, then? Let's clarify some terms quick. Mysticism. If there's any term more misunderstood than spirituality, it's mysticism. While in the modern, quote, Western, whatever that means, end quote, mind, mysticism equates to the paranormal or anything that can't be scientifically proven. That's a complete misnomer. By definition, mysticism is simply actions or aspects that bring the individual closer to the divine. What is the divine then? The divine, in my definition, is no sky daddy or omnipotent being. Rather, the divine are the elements that make up the cosmos, which a sapient being has the ability to naturally and organically, as in without mechanical or electronic-based technology, impress their intention upon and alter slash affect the universe at large. So if mysticism is simply the process, rituals, and actions based on the components of a sapient being allowed through biology or through interactions with elements of the universe, then it is something that has zero conflict with the scientific method. That means mysticism and science are not inherently incompatible. I know that's a bold claim, but it's a major part of what we will be discussing in this column going forward. Where does this leave the term spirituality? Spirituality encompasses the elements of consciousness and biology of a sapient being that allows one to engage in mysticism and ultimately engage the divine parts of the objective cosmos we objectively exist within, albeit through a somewhat subjective experience. Take meditation, for example. Meditation, through various methods, is a process that allows one to access the divine. That means these methods of meditation are mysticism. And the parts of your consciousness and biology that allows you to meditate is spirituality. Spirituality, then, is the beginning of this entire aspect of existence for the individual. Because of that, the term itself encompasses all three parts as it is the beginning. So you see, while spirituality is a horrible and misused term for many reasons, it's also one that in English has no real synonym that doesn't get even worse and more in line with supernaturalism. It's also a term that is readily understood by the English-speaking world as pertaining to mysticism and the divine. Understand, I am not one to bother taking the time to reclaim terms. For example, anarchists are anarchists, regardless of flavor, so go ahead and throw a hyphen on it if you feel like you need to be specific. Yet, this is a case where it's necessary to be specific, even if the definitions here are oversimplified for the purposes of this writing. That's at the very heart of this column's purpose, to explore and expand on all three. One, what is the divine? Two, what are the mystical practices that are helpful to the individual? Three, what is the individual's spirituality? All of this means that for the sake of brevity, simplicity, and a modicum of understanding by those unfamiliar with the bulk of my work, I have now learned to become begrudgingly comfortable with the term spirituality. Spirituality, while one part of existence, 
is a part of existence that is not to be ignored if an individual is to be truly happy and experience love in all its forms in our travels through life in the cosmos. Arguably, it's the most important aspect of our existence, but keep in mind that it is only one aspect and the other aspects of our existence should be fostered alongside it. But I'm excited to explore the divine, mystical, and spiritual with you in this column. Power on. So that, that's, that's the write-up from uh, issue one of the Sovereign Technica newsletter. And in the spirituality uh, section of that, I have been continuing this conversation. Okay. Um, and I implore you, it's available in the free version. If you just want the free version, the spirituality section is available for each one of those. Go ahead and check those out. Okay. And read up what I'm talking about, but no one is talking about anything anti-scientific here whatsoever. Uh, no one is talking about a God. I will say it again. I already said it in what I just reread to you, but I'll say it again. There is no God, but mysticism spirituality in and of itself. And Hey, you know, I know other people kind of talked about this recently. Great. I've already been talking about it for a very long time, just in 2021, 2022, but even long before that, but spirituality is in of itself a technology and it deserves, it needs to be a part of the conversation on this show, especially. And it is also a major part of the solution to, if we want to be that broad, what's wrong in the world. So I'm going to discuss it here. It's going to be here. It's going to be a part of this. It's going to be a very, I mean, there's times where, you know, we're not going to get into definitions and get into, you know, talking about spirituality necessarily. A lot of times it is just going to be the weird and the strange might end up talking about what I don't, but what other people may consider aliens or things like this, get into historical subjects. A lot of times, which, you know, the history of religion is often the history of the world, um, or at least it's colored by it. And that will come up. I just want you to know where I'm coming from when I say the word spirituality. To me, religion and spirituality are two completely separate things. One is a technology. One is a part of the human condition. The other is a bullshit construct. So I also plan on releasing other um, spirituality uh, uh, write-ups that I do for the Sovereign Technic newsletter in audio form. Um, and I'm debating where I'm going to have those land, but I am going to do those. So maybe you get, you know, more of, of what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, if what ultimately happens out of the conversations that occur in this segment of the show, if people start calling me a mystic or something like that, go for it, baby. I'm fine with that. I'm a big enough boy. Anyway, we'll be right back with the climax, just a preview of what's to come and making sure, you know, that what I'm talking, you know, where I'm coming from and what I'm talking about. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. The most incredible television event ever as you join the crew of Battlestar Galactica. Right here, you creepy crawling. for life in a hostile galaxy. Most of us are dead. Alone, with only one hope, Battlestar Galactica and her crew. There is no other destination. Commander Adama, Captain Apollo, the intrepid Starbuck, and the dazzling Athena, searching for a new and peaceful world. We may as well live for today. We might not have many left. Let the attack begin. Battlestar 
Galactica. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the climax, uh, where I get to talk about really whatever I want to talk about, even though you might think that in the ancient and the strange segment, I get to do that. I kind of do. But, um, you know, th there's parts of that that will probably end up becoming very q and I could imagine that. And to understand, like, I've been having, if you haven't been a patron, like on Patreon, in the weekly Q&As, I've been discussing Kabbalah. Uh, amongst other, you know, aspects of spirituality and really, I mean, it's been like the hottest topic. It's the thing I get the most questions about. Um, so I am talking about clearly what other people want me to talk about. This isn't just, you know, my ego coming out. Okay. Um, so I want to, I want to be clear on that. And anyway, I, I hope you go and listen to all that because the conversations are amazing. And of course we do the live Q and A's, uh, as well. And, you know, that's been a major part of those conversations. Some of them have been really far out and I mean that in the best possible way. Um, yeah. So, but here during the climax, as I do, I get to talk about whatever I want to talk about. Sometimes I talk about movies, books, comic books, uh, you know, subjects, topics, whatever it, like it's, it's anything. It's where I really control the show because I do like to give you some control over sovereign tech. It's here for you. Um, and this is one Oh man, I could really spend a ton of time talking about this, <laughs> but I am going to talk about a comic book and I am going to talk about what may be my favorite subject. Uh, well, okay. Besides that subject, <laughs> um, Star Trek, I'm going to talk about Star Trek and this is a new re-release and I actually applaud this. Um, getting re-released by IDW, one of the better comic book companies out there right now doing amazing work. Um, they re-released a, some classic DC comics from the eighties of star Trek. Uh, and they are calling it the mirror universe saga. And this, so when, when this originally came out, it was originally, uh, star Trek issues, just star Trek. That's the title. It was originally issues nine through 16. They started in on December 1st of 1984. And the comic book series began basically after um, Star Trek three came out, which had come out, uh, in June of that same year of 1984. And this, so the mirror universe saga, they end up basically Kirk and crew. They now under, okay, let, let me give some timeline here. This is before Star Trek four came out, which would come out in 1987. Right. And Star Trek four would seem to, would appear to take more or less directly after the events of Star Trek three. Like there was no time in between. Um, Spock seemed to be going through, you know, reprogramming his brain or, you know, relearning his, his Katra. Uh, and it would appear that the bird of prey that Kirk and crew stole in Star Trek three, um, was still on the planet and never left it because the mirror universe saga here, this opens up with them launching with them taking the, uh, the bird of prey to really go back. And what's happening is, is that Kirk is going to tell Carol Marcus on the, the, the station at regular one going to tell her what happened to David, you know, and he wanted, he wants to tell her in person. 
Um, and it's a beautiful moment that happens in these comic books where there's a, they, they end up going down to the Genesis cave, which the Genesis cave did not fall prey to the same problem as the Genesis planet, um, which man, I, I could get into a whole conversation around this. Actually, uh, Ellen, Rob and I, we went last weekend to go see the re-release of Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, uh, in this case being the director's cut. This is actually the second time Ellen and I have gone and seen the director's cut of Star Trek II in theaters. Um, but it's great to see it with Rob as well. And, you know, it was funny. One of the things we came out of that, we were asking, we were like, wait a minute. Or at least I was asking him, and, and Rob was as well. Like, I never really thought about it exactly, but what did the Genesis planet come out? Like, what formed that? You know, and we're like, wait, was it a regular one or was it the nebula? Like, did it just form out of the nebula? And, you know, and Rob's like, yeah, he's like, you know, I tried to find that answer for years and it's nowhere to be found. And you know what? He's actually kind of right. Um, the only place I really knew of an answer, it seems officially that the Genesis planet was formed out of um, the nebula. And then I kind of recalled that um, there's a great book series for the next generation called uh, the Genesis Wave. And in that, Picard theorizes that if the Genesis device was detonated on an actual celestial body and it wasn't detonated in the middle of a nebula, that it would have worked. That like the Genesis device, Dave, basically David Marcus, Captain Kirk's son, you know, even though he used protomatter, was successful. Um you know, he theorizes that in, in, in the book. It, it's, it's a killer book series. So anyway, that's about the closest answer that I could officially get. I didn't bother. I hadn't yet gone into like looking at the Star Trek two novelization from, you know, way back in 82 or whatever. Um, that though, that probably says that it was the nebula that it formed out of, which I guess makes the most sense. Um, but that does raise questions. And this comic series, um, from the eighties that DC did, which, it was a second to none run everything they were doing throughout the, uh, the eighties and early nineties, including when they started doing a next generation comic after that became a thing, uh, are some of the best Star Trek comics just ever, ever written. I'll probably talk about that more in a minute. Anyway, this takes place directly. This series takes place directly after Star Trek three. Um, and so you're dealing with the fallout, uh, you know, the events of the fallout, you know, of, of the Genesis planet, you know, being destroyed. Uh, so you find out that the Genesis cave, that's on, you know, underneath the surface of regular one, um, is very stable, which was a cool idea. And they, they end up like, they put a statue of David under there. Um, and you know, like Kirk has this great food. It's, it's really, really a beautiful thing. Um, and that's, you know, I want to talk more about what actually happens in the comic series. Uh, but again, I do want to illustrate that some elements of it do contradict what would end up happening in Star Trek four. So this isn't exactly canon, or at least they would, you'd have to do some shoehorning to make it work because they do leave with Spock aboard the bird of prey. And like I said, they do end up going to a uh, regular one, which there doesn't seem to be really time for that. I would argue as a hardcore Star Trek fan who has, you know, before 2017 basically consumed everything that was Star Trek. I would argue that like there was a long held theory that, after Star Trek, the motion picture, Kirk took the enterprise on another five-year mission. That's, I don't think that's ever been officially, you know, like that's ever been laid out as canon, but most Star Trek fans kind of accept that that happened. 
And if you can squeeze in an entire five-year mission between Star Trek The Motion Picture and the Wrath of Khan, I think you can squeeze in one little extra mission, you know, that the, um, that the Bird of Prey might have went on before the events of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. So I don't mind that. Um, and I, I want to get into this argument around canonicity and the value of reading these things in a minute. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so there's things that happen in this that might slightly contradict, say, statements made in Star Trek four or whatever, but it's still a ton of fun, uh, you know, really to, to, to read. And so again, it was, it was done before Star Trek four. Um, I think DC's run overall and these stories really treated the Star Trek mythos with a lot more respect than even Marvel comics did because Marvel had a run. I don't want to say it's about maybe it's 30 issues. I could be wrong about that, but they had a run from the, where they did the, the comic book version, graphic novel version of star Trek, the motion picture. And then they did events after that, which actually part of what leads to the belief of that there was another five-year mission, um, after that movie, which those comics parlay and actually Marvel would revisit that, that second five-year mission with Kirk, um, in their nineties star Trek comic books. Uh, that those are far better than what Marvel was doing in the eighties with Star Trek, but DC comics really did it right. Like they brought in the writers of these comic books at this time. You can, in every page, in every panel, it's just dripping with veneration and respect for these characters, for Scotty, for Chekhov, for Sulu, for especially for Uhura, Michelle Nichols, rest in power, uh, for, you know, Kirk, Spock, all of them, like even Sarek or Amanda, uh, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's dripping off the comic book ink, the, the pure veneration is the only word I can think of and it's deserved. God damn it. Um, it, way better than, than what Marvel was pulling. And, you know, just look at like Marvel's run with star Wars and you can kind of see how they just Marvel Marvel's always been little kid stuff you know, where, where they just treat everything as happy, go lucky and flighty or whatever as to where DC comics is like, no, we're writing about gods and, you know, and we're going to treat them as such. And they really, they did that with star Trek at the time. Uh, and you, again, you really see that, um, in the mirror universe saga. Uh, so of course, as the name suggests, um, they do end up going into the mirror universe again. Uh, they encounter a, with the bird of prey, in fact, and they, end, and Savick's there, everything they encounter, uh, a mirror universe version of the Excelsior, which th in that universe, it's still the great experiment, but in that universe, the great experiment works, which I think is a great thing for them to do because I've never understood why Star Trek, like, the franchise backed off from the Excelsior actually working, you know, with transwarp drive working because the reason it didn't work is because we saw it in Star Trek three. Scotty took the computer chips that kept it from functioning. So like, why was that considered a failure? It never made sense to me. Did like nobody look to see if the, you know, if all the necessary isolinear chips or whatever they were using at the time, uh, Duotronic, right? They used Duotronic uh, in the original series. Was there not enough, you know, du Duotronic uh, processors there? You're like, <laughs> I, I don't get it. You know, why, why that was the thing. So it was really cool. Again, pre-Star Trek four and before anybody had the nuts to say that the, the, the great experiment failed. Um, to get that explored. Like there's a point where it goes to like warp 17. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool, um, but you're in the mirror universe. So you get cool uniforms, but of course they are variations on the, you know, red uniforms that you see in star Trek two II and three and four. Um, 
and really all the, the original series films. Um, I thought that that, that was, that was really slick. You get more of, um, Captain Styles, the guy who, uh, that, that, um, James Sicking played in Star Trek three, you know, who's captaining the, the Excelsior who basically says like, you know, Kirk, you ever do this, you'll never, if you do this, you'll never sit in the command chair again. Uh, that guy kind of gets his revenge, um, in not just in the mirror universe, but also in what I guess we would call the prime universe. Uh, and it follows up on that, which is, that's a lot of fun, uh, to read as well. So there's a lot of fun to be had with this great revisit to the mirror universe, great follow-up to the events of star Trek three and it's follow-up with real heart. And I keep using the word, but it's the only one that fits with real veneration for the character and the story. Um, and this is the thing. So for me, I'm done with star Trek, you know, like after 2017, I don't fucking care. Like ever since discovery and Picard and lower decks and, you know, everything else that Paramount has basically been using as toilet paper clearly, uh, because it comes out looking like shit stains. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't even want, I'm glad that Michael Okuda, you know, thanks Satan. He, you know, he, he put together one final version of the Star Trek encyclopedia before CBS Paramount bastardized the entire franchise, you know, and, and, and frankly, like just obliterated it. Um, that's not, look, and I, and I've done it. I've, I've watched strange new worlds. I've watched some of these things and I'm just telling you, that's not Star Trek. And I can make that argument. It's not nostalgia talking. That's just not Star Trek. However, we are fortunate. We are blessed, dare I say, with material that has been made over the past 40 some odd years for Star Trek that is Star Trek. That again, venerates, appreciates, understands the material, you know, the, 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 the franchise that they're dealing with here the characters that they're dealing with and treats them with fucking respect. Uh, and the mirror universe saga, I'm glad these IDW is doing these classic re-releases because they're so worthwhile. Um, and really because there's nothing new that should be considered part of the Canon after star Trek enterprise, um, this stuff fits in beautifully as your own Canon as it can be Canon. Now, you know, you think of other books like the book that came after star Trek four um, probe, that book's phenomenal. And it explains more of like, like that probe that attacks and start quote unquote attacks. It's not really attacking, uh, in, in the voyage home ends up going to Romulus and everything. It's a tremendous story. There's no reason not to go back and enjoy that. There are plenty of stories. Simon and Schuster did a complete relaunch of all novel lines from like 2005 to 2017, 2019, maybe, uh, that were incredible. And those might as well be canon because they all take place after Star Trek Voyager. Um, and they do a far better job of anything than, than what CBS or Paramount's been doing since 2017. Um, so we have a lot to take in, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of Star Trek to continue to talk about. And honestly, it's made me realize there's actually a lot of Sovereign Trek, you know, episodes of Sovereign Trek not tech, but sovereign Trek that I used to do that I could do again because I could just go over all this material and it's endless amounts. Like it would take a lifetime to read everything that's out. That's been put out there, uh, about star Trek before, um, you know, the, the, the abominations like star Trek discovery and Picard and more. Um, 
And I just say, go for it, go to these. And if you want to get started on some, you know, Star Trek three is next to Star Trek, the motion picture. In my opinion, it's the best Star Trek movie ever made next to Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and so to get like a direct continuation after that, what a phenomenal adventure to go on and to get it from writers who were pre-internet, who actually knew how to write and weren't uh, bludgeoned by Twitter and other social media. Uh, it, it's a real treat to read these. Um, so, you know, with this re-release, you've got over 200 pages to take in and you're just in for a great time in the mirror universe and even the prime universe, uh, with them. And there's so much more out there to get into. So we'll see, I might get those in here and there, or maybe I'll, you know, pick up some sovereign treks, uh, still thinking about that. Maybe that might even be like a Patreon perk. Um, but I'll figure that out as it goes. Anyway, that is enough for episode 490 of sovereign tech and, uh, whew, <laughs> It's good to be back, baby. <laughs> and I will see all of you on the other side. I, I know your every move. I've heard your every word. I know you well. And I've got nothing left to prove. Your threats I find absurd I am your hell Every time You think that I'm done I'll come back Get me. Hey.